you are listening to Lightning Strikes Thrice, a Final Fantasy XIII series game club podcast. This is episode 7, covering chapter 10, and I am your host, Chris Taylor. With me is... This is Graham Markison. I'm Matt Marcus. I'm Justin Bordnick. Guys, we ended last episode wrapping up the interminable Chapter 9. You could be forgiven for getting everything that had happened in a haze of hundreds of too long combat encounters, so let's check the data log to see where we left off in the plot. To the amazement of the Lassie, the Primarch reveals himself to be a Falci whose true name is Bartandalus. Showing nothing but contempt for his human tools, he proceeds to casually slaughter Colonel Nabat and her subordinates. Bartandalus then shrugs off the Lassie's attacks and with mocking laughter declares his intention to enlighten them. In order to fulfill the focus given by them by the Pulse Falci, he states, One of the Lassie must become Ragnarok and bring an end to Cocoon. Sarah's task was simply to assemble the tools to achieve this end, to bring Snow and the others into contact with the lower world being. Her wish that they protect Cocoon was just that, a wish. It had nothing to do with her or their focus. Confounded by the naked truth, the dumbstruck Lassie flee the plummeting Palamecia on an airship provided by Bartandalus. Their craft is guided by an unseen power that protects them from Colonel Roche's onslaught and flies them towards the reality, hidden beneath the capital of Cocoon and the starting area of Chapter 10, the Fifth Ark. The Lissy heroes have left the ship and take stock of their surroundings. It seems that the ship that was directed by Bartandalus has brought them to a subway-like series of tunnels. Benio remarks that it looks like a piece of pulse. It is very strange for a piece of pulse to be sitting right under Eden. Now more than ever are the heroes worried that their focus is to destroy Cocoon. Snow in particular is taking it the hardest, his faith in Sarah shattered. It's peculiar that the Cocoon Falci Bartandalus would want the heroes to destroy Cocoon, and it has everyone confused. Hope concludes that Bartandalus's goal could be downright Lovecraftian. The player is given control of lightning. For this area, they can walk around and talk to their comrades. If you talk to Fang, she says he's central. <laughs> uh, still going with the, uh, the Seath jokes. They're never good. They're always bad. There's one good one at the end of this chapter, though. That's the only good joke in the entire game. <laughs> All right. When the player is ready to move on, there's a cutscene where Lightning and Snow talk. Lightning says Snow's faith in Sarah took him this far and kept him strong. She claims that Snow's faith in Sarah even inspired her. So the Crystarium expansion that you get here is pretty lackluster. Uh, aside from a few new black magic spells and vanilla getting... D-Protect Gun, D-Shell Gun. There's nothing, it's just stat-ups. 
but it is worth noting that these new stat-up nodes are more powerful than the ones of the past, and they cost less uh, crystal points. So the degree to which they cost less varies across character and role, but this is where everything is sort of trying to be balanced out between all the characters before you hit what is going to be sort of the beginning of the post-game. Lightning picks up Fierce Siphon, which charges the ATB when attacking a staggered target, and Jeopardize boosts the chain bonus off of a staggered target after attacking them. This is a really big get for your commando. Fang Sentinel gets challenged. It's a, uh, a provoke that fails less often, uh, still fails sometimes. Counterattack is a passive dodge and attack, which is really good for just mitigating more damage. Uh, commando gets Death Blow, which is just an execute on low HP enemies. Uh, Seems to be a percentage scaling now that I'm into the post game, so it's actually very good for enemies with enormous health pools. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a uh, saboteur, she gets fog and fog. Uh, uh, Jinx is just basically boon for debuffs. When you put a new debuff on an enemy, it extends the duration of the previously applied debuffs. The Lassie heroes come across a room of tall machine monoliths. A glyph on the ground in the shape of their brand activates, and the heroes react in pain. Some doors on the monoliths open and a small fight starts. In particular, this fight is with pulse work knights. They are like the other pulse automatons from earlier in the game, but these are much more difficult. They hit really hard and have uh, area of effect attacks, kind of like a blitz. They are susceptible to many debuffs, however, and when they stagger, they are immobile. After the battle, two major things unlock. First, the player has full control of choosing who's in the party, including the leader, Additionally, full role development is unlocked, and that will take a bigger explanation. Any character can now learn any role. All it takes to unlock any of these secondary roles is to pay the CP to activate an ability node like attack or fire or something, and that character will have access to that role in the paradigm menu. There are some problems, however. The CP cost of activating these nodes on these secondary roles is way higher than normal. Not only that, the stat boosts from these secondary roles are minimal and cannot compare to the primary stat boosts. Finally, the ability selection for most of these secondary roles is usually narrower and less potent than main roles. There are some upsides though, right? A uh, player might want to use these secondary roles sort of in a supplementary support way, like getting Hope's commando role so that he has Ruin, which works really well because his magic stat is high and Fang's... Yeah. Uh, but Fang gets access to like Bravera and Faithra through these roles, which allow her to buff really well when other synergists don't necessarily have access to those yet. So there, there are some reasons to, to get this, but it's mostly for post-game stuff, given how much it costs. Yeah, it's definitely like high-level play. It comes in handy in the uh, last chapter when you get like a new enemy type 10 minutes from the end of the game. Yeah. And uh, they are super vulnerable to commandos. So having three commandos is incredibly good there. Full role development was a really bad sequel to Full Metal Jacket, which is why we don't talk about it. Kubrick had nothing to do with that one. So I just passed it up. I really wish I could have come up with a super dumb joke just now. Uh, can always add it in post. Vanil recognizes this area as an arc, which Fang explains were uh, legendary facilities made by Pulse to house living weapons like an armory. No one would expect them to be on Cocoon. The heroes describe it as a training gauntlet for Lassie. And I hate this because it's literally the game telling you, okay, it's grind time, but now there's a story reason. 
But Matt, it might only be like an hour long and not actually articulate like a giant grind. No, yeah, exactly. Except this, yeah, this. this Except it's like four hours long. <laughs> right. This chapter should be half as long. How do they get the arc here? Right. Like, okay, the pulse pulse made these these arcs. They put two of every enemy on and <laughs> put them somewhere where the cocoon citizens would never think of them in cocoon. But like, how how they get it up there? Nobody noticed. I mean, it's kind of like when they, uh, after the word transgression, when they dragged a bunch of pulse shit onto Cocoon and, you know, Anima came over during that. Like, I think this was part of that, you know, collection, like garbage collection to rebuild Cocoon, like the cities in Cocoon. We have to stop saying the war of transgression. It is incredibly distracting. And every time you start to see, hear it, I just think of the war of pulsy and aggression. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, the, God, this is going to be a shittiest civil war thing, metafo- metaphor. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this game is already like post 9-11 as fuck. Like it doesn't need more more politics in it. Also, it's the fifth arc. So presumably there are at least four more of these lying around just full of dudes to fight. Well, apparently there's going to be a ninth arc, but that that was dummied content. What? Uh, there's going to be like another arc location this game, but it got like taken out. That seems like a smart idea. I'm glad yeah, they did that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, well, so since we're going to be spending the next four hours here, let's talk about some enemies. New enemies in the area include circuitrons, which are bombs, except their element is now lightning. That seems like Later a on, idea. there are some uh, slug dudes that. named Naticulacal. Yeah, whatever. They're fucking slug dudes, right? <laughs> and uh, they use their nutrient absorption ability to uh, drain HP from allies. They have, like, no HP whatsoever, so this drain is functionally non-existent, and you can just use Blitz to, like, obliterate all of them at once. Right, but when they get to, like, seven or eight of them at once, like, I found myself getting, like, pressured to to switch to heal for a little bit just so that I, you know, didn't get drained to death. No, you summon Odin, and then, you like, the encounter's <laughs> over. <laughs> yeah, I always, I always forget that I have the summons. I never want to spend my TP for some reason. The problem is that, like, if you get that slime on you, it's really gross. That's, that's why they're threatening. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. So speaking of slimes, there's also the phosphoric ooze. Which what an are, incredible you know, segue. We should talk about it for like five minutes. This is how you know I'm a pro podcaster, because that sweet seg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're still the amateurs here. Um, on their own, the oozes are not that big of a problem. They're like other flan-like enemies. They like do this double slap and they uh, inflict poison on you. But the trick that these ones have is that they can merge. So what happens is one ooze decides to merge into another one and it turns into an alchemic ooze, which are really powerful and have really high uh, stagger defense and, and physical defense. They take so they do so much damage. They're ridiculously strong and it makes the fight go from like 30 seconds to like two minutes easily. Nope. Nope. Yeah. And like. Here's the problem I have with this particular thing is, you, you know, there's no way to really anticipate and adjust to which ooze you're supposed to kill when the merge starts. So, like, if you're attacking the one that happens to be merging, you can kill it because even during the merge animation, it still has its original defense. So you can rush and kill it or, or get most of its health down before it, you know, buffs up. But if you're attacking the other guy, for instance, or there's like you're fighting four of them and so... You know, you're, you're attacking one that isn't merging. You're just kind of SOL. It's interesting that you bring that up as the problem with the enemy and not the problem actually being that Square Enix successfully managed to turn more game into a punishment rather than a reward. <laughs> it's pretty. Yeah, uh, it, 
incredible that they managed to pull that off. Yeah, somewhere in the lower traverses, there's a fight against like 10 Noctil Kule, and those kinds of fights are just AoE central. Like we said before that you use Blitz, but like what what I try and do is I try and get like two Commandos and a Ravager using area attacks. I don't remember if I had like the highest level Ravager magic available, but that's basically what I do. I think by that point you do, because that's in the big room where you jump along some pipes and there's a dope treasure over there. But I think by then you could theoretically have like an Aga spell. Yeah, maybe. As the player delves deeper into the arc, they'll start venturing through large cylindrical vertical shafts called confluxes. In the first one, the player encounters two new enemies, Skatane and uh, Stikini. Skatanes aren't too special on their own. They don't have any special uh, abilities and hit for moderate damage, but the Skatinis can imbue Skatanes with bravery and haste with their delirious dance technique. If that wasn't enough, they can also use Forbidden Dance to daze the heroes. And I, I still hate these guys. I, I always yeah. hate when these, these types of enemies show up. They're really obnoxious. I like a glass cannon dude, but not when the glass cannon dude also completely debilitates you, just turning them into a regular cannon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so further further down the road, you get to this huge room with a giant robo-centaur thing that you can fight. And they're, they're sort of like a mini-boss, I guess. Right at the beginning of the fight, the Berserker summons this powerful ally using an ability called Forge Blade. And if it gets this cast off, it summons a Centurior Blade. You're going to have to probably kill those guys first because they hit really hard. So sort of like managing, uh, managing the adds while whittling down the boss slowly. Yeah, the Berserker has lots of health, but it's vulnerable to many debuffs. And after getting staggered, can be launched to ensure it cannot use its Forge Blade ability again. Uh, the Berserkers are easy to get a preemptive strike on, so if the player sneak attacks it and staggers it instantly, they can launch the Berserker before it gets the summon off, uh, and then all you have to do is dispatch it before the stagger is over. This enemy is generally pretty cool, but there's one of these that's optional in Chapter 13, and it is, like, way harder than all of the last bosses of the game. These are very significant enemies. Yeah, I like fighting these guys a lot. And one of the little tricks to it is that the blade can't be provoked, so your sentinels aren't quite as effective. I mean, the blade attacks very, very quickly and can, you know, stack a lot of damage in a quick succession. But it's still worth having a sentinel around just so that they can still tank the damage and increase your your physical defense. Congratulations to Square Enix for designing a blade that is much like regular blade, where it hits very hard and quickly. (laughs) So... In the same room, uh, we find a weapon for Saz, the Regels. The Regels have a strange ability called Staggerlock. Staggerlock prevents the user from staggering an enemy, so you can raise the chain gauge up to just shy of triggering the stagger, but you can't go over. Yeah, I'm rolling with the Rigels, since uh, both Snow and Vanille both have Ravager rolls, and those are the peoples I'm using besides Zaz. There's no worrying about Zaz being the only Ravager and the only one who can, like, trigger a uh, stagger. Right away, I put loads of upgrades into it, and it evolved into, like, the Polaris specials, and it's been pretty good. I was surprised how effective and, like, how uh, cool they were. It's not been a problem. Further into the fifth arc, the player encounters imps. They are small, weak creatures with a decent fire attack, but their true danger is the ability to summon aramens, which are basically imps but stronger. Dispatching imps before they can summon is ideal since aramens, like the alchemic ooze before, do not give any extra rewards. 
Imps could theoretically be dangerous if groups gather in high numbers, but no encounters has any more than three of them. The Aramans are not fun fights. Like, they're surprisingly tanky, and they have higher level magic than the imps. And it's really obnoxious. Like, if one of these got summoned, I just always did a retry. But it's not nearly <laughs> as obnoxious as when a similar type of enemy in the next chapter does the same trick, but then a behemoth shows up. Yeah, so the greater behemoths aren't anything new at this point, but they still have the, the heave ability, which will which will kill you dead real fast, and sort of that midlife transformation where they rear up on their hind legs and can inflict pain. They like like I guess a lot of a lot of like high end enemies in this game actually they're they're really vulnerable to debuffs, which I guess makes sense, right? Because otherwise you couldn't have an entire class dedicated to buffs and debuffs. Right. You know these guys aren't super rough because their stagger meter doesn't reset just their life resets when they stand up so if you're close to staggering them and then you just ride it out until they're staggered and then dump a bunch of debuffs on them and they're pretty manageable that's what i just switched to uh the two commando one ravager paradigm and just obliterate them because you're still doing like 300 to 400 percent damage yeah yeah the behemoths here aren't aren't too bad in the area, there's a weapon around for Hope, the Alicanto, and they're very much like the Regales earlier with the having the Stagger Lock ability. It also has the Gestalt Synthesis ability, which will randomly cause an enemy to instantly stagger when you attack them, which sounds really good. It doesn't happen a lot, but like in the late game, when like a single fight, you might be queuing up like 10 bars of six attacks. It's gonna happen and is a huge time saver. Right. I wish I had this for some certain hunts that I will talk about next episode. <laughs> Do you prefer the Gestalt synthesis ability or the Replicant synthesis ability? Uh, <sighs> honestly, you know, I prefer Gest I prefer Gestalt because I'm really tired of like Fey anime boys in my video game, so Oh man, this one must be rough on you this entire game. Says the says the person talking about like the most wayfish video game there's ever been. Minus <laughs> I could go either way. Uh, so at this point, the heroes find uh, Sid Reigns waiting for them. And to their surprise, he is also a Lissie. And he explains to them that they were being manipulated and groomed to destroy Cocoon. Sure, why not? You know, the reason why that this is desirable is because destroying Cocoon will bring back the Maker, who is the <sighs> one who created both the Falci and the humans. And the Maker has uh, sort of vanished, but no one knows where the Maker went. The theory is, there's there's no proof of this, it's just a theory that as if there is a catastrophe, like maybe the destruction of Cocoon and the death of everything inside of it, the Maker would return to see what's what's up. So, because Cocoon Falci can't betray their nature and harm Cocoon, they would hire mercenary middlemen to do this for them. And Sid is a lassie made by Bartandalus to help him herd Lightning and her comrades into completing this task. However, he wants to defy this fate, save Cocoon, abandon his focus, and to do so, he needs to kill your entire party. He feels really bad about it, though. I absolutely hate this. It turns your characters from actors who have their own plans and motivations and are trying to, like, do a thing into pawns in some bullshit anime villain 12th dimensional chess, and it's so boring. Like, 
hey, you know this game where we've had a lot of good character beats and everyone's motivated by personal struggles and finding their reason to stay alive. What if we got rid of all of that and it was just, lol, we manipulated you? Yeah, if I could uh, come in for a second, like, it's one of those things where, like, that might, to the writer, that might be, like, a really interesting plot, but it's a really bad story because it completely invalidates, like, the characters and their emotions. Yeah, it's literally the entire Fabula Nova Crystallis was supposed to be about characters fighting against their fate, but they don't subvert that at all. And this fight in particular with uh, Sid in particular, we'll get to it after the fight, but something happens that seems to completely invalidate the point he makes that he's doing this of his own free will. It's so muddled. And then a whole lot of the rest of the plot is whether or not they're going to go through with this thing that they're being forced to do, yet they're still choosing to do it, yet they're going to do it differently, yet they're doing the same thing. It's it's so muddled. No. And you know what? They do it again at the end of the game, right? Mm-hmm. They pull the fucking rug again, and literally the only thing that matters in this entire game is a single decision by a single character in the last three minutes in the ending cutscene. Oh, so, right. like, whether you want to destroy the Reapers, control the Reapers, or merge. Yeah, ex- except you always get the same color laser. You don't <laughs> pick. <laughs> yeah, I find that if you want to defy fate uh, in a video game, it's more effective to infiltrate a palace and steal the oppressor's heart. You know, they'll never see it coming. You're never coming back, Justin, actually. <laughs> yeah, probably true. Yeah, you, you, you've invoked the, uh, the kill phrase for Chris. Persona 5 is my kill phrase. Bartandalus! Bar- Bartandalus! <laughs> yeah, and also this whole uh, uh, maker business, it's very much that classic Final Fantasy, but the real villain is a level above that nobody mentioned that came out of completely nowhere. Like, nobody's mentioned a maker before, and now, I mean, the maker's not really the villain in this case, per se, but the fact that the villain is the point of the plot It's very out of nowhere, but it's also very much in line with what Final Fantasy has been doing for a long time, like X-Death, for instance. It's the fucking Square Enix special. Much like Maker's Mark, every boss ex machina is the same, but every plot is different. (laughs) This doesn't, I mean, it goes back further than X-Death, right? Did you, I don't know if you had, if you played Final Fantasy 3, and if you haven't, uh, don't. Nope. But, (laughs) no, it's Final Fantasy 1! The first fucking one does this! Well, oh, right, chaos. sort of. Yeah, yeah. But Final Fantasy three, I think, is like when it like really uh, took its form because, like, in the last bit of like the plot, you get this uh, random dark cloud person to come in and like justify all of Xanda's motivations and and for some yeah, for some no, reason, but, it's a very naked lady. Well, you spend the entire game chasing after this guy, and then you just kill him, and he's like, "Why was actually this?" And then you kill that. Yeah, but I don't care about that. That's not really interesting. No. What if our game was suddenly 20 hours long? Also, what if the last dungeon had five bosses in a row and the hardest enemies in the game and no save points? Yeah, Final Fantasy III is like a really hard game. It's pretty bad. I've only beat it twice. <laughs> Wait, you played it again? <laughs> it's, re- it's really hard. It's pretty bad. I only spent 160 hours playing it's it. Like, oh, it's not that long. <laughs> did we did we fall into like the Steam reviews section of the 
<laughs> oh, okay. You know what? Let's speak of shitty hot takes. Oh, we're going to have to like edit out a pause really quick because I found the most relevant thing in the world related to the worst JRPG takes and Final Fantasy 13. Where did it go? Oh, wait. Did you? Is that the one you posted in Slack? Yeah, I got to find that. It's <laughs> that fucking really incredible. Good. That, was, that was pretty. That, that was a solid uh, take. Where did it go? <laughs> Damn it. I, I want to find this so bad. Okay, I got it. I got it. It's very much like this uh, take I read uh, while doing some research on the Final Fantasy subreddit where it says, Final Fantasy 13 is my favorite game of all time. It is an unparalleled narrative experience. However, the game design choices were incredibly controversial. The game beautifully explored the question of can free will exit if fate is unavoidable? Sick exit. <laughs> what? If, fuck it. I'm gonna blow out worked for that guy. I also liked this game, so like it has to work. It has to work for so many people because they keep doing it in every game. Apparently. So really, when you God. said that you'll never see it coming, the answer is you'll actually like always see it coming. You'll always see it coming, and that's what I want, because I want this to be the same game with a different number at the end of the title. But that's Dragon Quest. Fuck it. <laughs> Don't, no, not right now. <laughs> All right. Oh, man. So are we allowed to talk about extraneous material, like the, the Final Fantasy thirteen Ultimania guidebook? Yes, please, please do. I saw notes of that, but it's not it's not in English, so I couldn't I didn't buy yeah, it. Yeah, so so here's here's just some like additional garbage backstory is that the maker doesn't even exist as they understand it. There are actually three makers. There's one for Cocoon and one for Pulse, and I think one for something else. And then they all answer to an even higher maker that the uh Lissy and Falsy don't even know about because he doesn't get involved with anything. So depending on which of these people are talking about a maker, they might not even be talking about the same thing. Yeah, that that just completely ruins. Oh, oh the my whole god! Thing. I'm sorry. Did you hear that? <laughs> I got. I made the most angry arm gesture that I knocked some plates off a table. I I am keeping that in. I think okay. one of them is called. I think literally one of them is named Pulse too, just because. That way it makes more sense, I guess. Uh, Question mark. This podcast is over. <laughs> is it, was that was that a, something from uh, 13 that basically showed up in 13.2 or Lightning Returns? Or is that just completely out of left yeah, field? Yeah, like, as the games progress, you start exploring the cosmology of, like, this Fabula Nova Crystallis, which I think is actually kind of successful at. But you do interact with, like, these gods of uh, Final Fantasy 13. And yeah. then he's just a dick and you kill him. Yeah, I, I'm really, really looking forward to, like, 13-2 completely going off the rails with this, with no, this it's, cosmology. No, it's like 80 hours of fan fiction. It really okay, is. Wait, wait, like, their, name, their names oh are uh, Lindsay and Pulse, and then the higher god is Buhun Velzi. Yeah, that's the one you kill at the end of 13. Also, there's Etro. Yeah, Etro. Etro's the one that, like... Yeah. Anyway, we're we're getting really off topic here, so we should probably just talk about. Yeah. For more information about this, there's Final Fantasy 13 Ultimania Omega. It's not off topic. We're we're talking about how this game is full of bullshit, and here's more of it. Right. And all of this was in the guide for this book, which presumably was the start of what eventually turned into Final Fantasy 15, where you got the game, but it only had 40 percent of the story because there was also the movie and the anime and the five spinoff games. They were just like, mm. we're not interested in telling a coherent, self-contained story because we can sell more things. 
if right. we chop it up into 50 pieces. Yeah. Boss fight. Sid Reigns. Is this the worst Sid in Final Fantasy? Yeah, he's definitely like a wet fart of a Sid. I don't know about that. Like, even the first Sid from Final Fantasy 2, like, I remember him a little bit. This guy is just... Ugh, whatever. Final Fantasy 7 Sid is the worst Sid. What? He's not that toothpick. Well, he oh. like he's memorable. Oh, it's okay. It's okay that he like verbally and physically abuses his wife because he's got a charming toothpick. Yeah, well, exactly. no, like okay, I guess he's a worse <laughs> Sid in like terms of moral character, but like he's a character. I don't know. The Sid from Final Fantasy XII is also pretty bad because he's just a cackling madman scientist. Oh, he's cool though. He's cool, but he he's talks also to himself insane. and has a laser. Somebody really likes this Sid though because they copied and pasted him into Final Fantasy XV with a different name. And he has the huh. same character arc. He is uh, joins the villains and has a commanding army position and then dies and is later resurrected as a mindless zombie husk. It's the exact same thing. Yeah, they re- there's actually a couple uh, examples of that with Final Fantasy XV taken after Final Fantasy XIII. But anyway, the boss fight, Sid reigns. Sid transforms into a Seath. Although it seems he has not lost his self like Seath traditionally do. He's just lost his scales like Seath traditionally has. <laughs> Much like the Celestia hero switching through roles and paradigms, Sid fights by switching through shifts. His offensive shift, he has strong physical attacks and ruin, and his defensive shift, he guards. And in his recovery shift, he heals with cures and removes debuffs with Asuna. You know, I used to run a gas station, and I can confirm that this is very accurate, where first shift does all the work, second shift just cleaning up, and third shift does much of nothing. <laughs> you know what? That, that, that was unsuccessful. No. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you tried. I, I mostly just wanted to bait people who work third shift. After losing about half his health, he mutates further and acquires a new move called Ser- Seraphic Ray. Yeah, there Seraphic we go. Seraphic Ray, yeah. Okay, Seraphic Ray, which hits the heroes for heavy damage, uh, heals all his debuffs, and cleanses all of the party's buffs. Mm -hmm. Uh, He no longer indicates what shift he's currently in, and his ruin and cure powers, like, just have bigger numbers. Uh, And then he gains access to to his own buffs and debuffs. Yeah, I mean, that's what makes this fight... Well, I don't know if I'm going to steal your note, because you stole mine. (laughs) Well, fuck you. (laughs) Go ahead, do it. I dare you. Right, but th- this fight is really frantic and dynamic, and that's in part because you can't just stack yourself up with buffs and h- him with debuffs and just, you know, go ham at him. Uh, I do like that, though, because it's like, this is the only other Lassie you fight, right? So it just indicates that becoming a Lassie means that you can switch between three different ability sets at any time. Which is actually a really interesting point, because, like, there's this weird 
bit of like gameplay and narrative thing where I, I assume that, you know, when you become a lessee, you don't literally be like, here's your jobs. Here are your three jobs. I assume like you just get skills that are related to your personality or, or your background, because I, I found it really interesting that the two characters from Pulse are natural saboteurs and the two two of the characters from Cocoon are natural synergists, like protecting themselves and whatnot. I, I found that like in a narrative sense, really interesting, but also like it feels like a weird, they kind of stapled gameplay onto this narrative thing. You heard it here first, Matt Marcus in favor of racial stereotyping. It's nationalism, not racial oh, stereotyping. Oh, it's ethno stereotyping. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. I uh, know they're uh, from different planets, so I think it's more like planetary stereotyping. Oh, sure. Whatever. Okay, so what <laughs> anyway. You get your job at the at the Lassie job office. It just happens off screen because it's not interesting. You gotta get like fill out all these forms and papers and stuff. Our Lassie Union? You can play the spin-off game Papers, Please, which is about uh signing <laughs> up for your new job as a as a Lassie. Oh man, I got Ravager again. <sighs> yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> it takes a it takes a three hundred percent chain dodge to stagger this guy, and he hits really really hard throughout the entire battle, no matter what form he's in. So using sort of defensive buffs or a sentinel during his offensive shifts, especially, is recommended. During his defensive shifts, you can heal back and buff up, but he will purge any debuffs you put on him with Asuna. That said, it doesn't mean that debuffing him is a bad idea, right? Because then he's wasting his turn on Asuna. Right, and surprisingly, when he's guarding, you can still land debuffs. Like, you would think that during a guard, you couldn't do that, but that's not true. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely worth debuffing him, because it's, like, how you want to debuff a Juggernaut one time just to make them, like, waste a ton of time steam cleaning. Mm-hmm. Overall, I like the fight a lot. I had to do it three times. Uh, first time, I just was not set up properly. The second time, I did get set up and got slightly greedy at the end. But by the third time, I just absolutely bodied him. It was a very good fight. Yeah, it's definitely, like, one of the better fights in the game. I had a pretty great time with it, even though, like, like you said, if he has debuffs on him, he's using Asuna, and that's a great distraction while you, like, even recover or, you know, build up his Ravager chain. It's good stuff. Yeah, he's going full one-wigged angel in this fight, and it is definitely tense, and the music behind it is, you know, lifting it up. It's got a lot of spectacle to this particular fight, which there are only like, I want to say, three or four fights in the game that are, you know, this level of spectacle. And, and it's funny because this is the only one of a person who's like person sized. After the fight, Sid Rain turns into Crystal as if he completed his focus. And I found this really confusing. This was the thing I mentioned earlier. So he says he's going to fight the Pulselessy in order to defy his focus. But at the same time, he looks like he completes his focus by doing so. And again, that's that's the fundamental problem with this fate and defying fate narrative is that it seems like he thought he did his own thing. But in reality, he did exactly what he was supposed to. No, that's so, what fate fucking is. It's going to happen no matter what. It explains uh, that in the, uh, the, the like story recap logbook that they discover that apparently an alternate way to not turn into a, a monster is to fulfill your own wish as a human, which will also turn you into Crystal. That's fucking it's... stupid! And I need to get pizza that. tonight! Shazam! Crystal! Is that like your deepest, most held wish? Yeah, but it's in the it's in the logbook if you read it. No, I had pizza last night. 
Well, then that wouldn't count. Uh, well, <laughs> that I mean, special. It was really good pizza. It was pretty special. Yeah. Uh, the other confusing thing is that he turns to Crystal and then he like dematerializes, and we haven't seen that yet. We've seen like three different crystallizations at this point. We've seen Sarah just turning into a piece of crystal. You have Dodge looking like he got frozen in ice. And then you have this guy turning into crystal and then disappearing. Are you trying to tell me that Final Fantasy 13 might not be narratively coherent? Uh, just a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, after the fight, the player's crystarium expands and... This time, it totally makes up for the lackluster expansion at the end of the last chapter. At this point, you have significant development with many new skills for the new roles, and the stat nodes are also really potent here. The problem is that the cost of the node goes up to 4,000 to 8,000 during a time in which the fights only take 6,000 CP, and it's going to stay at this level of cost for, like, the next 10 hours, so... Right now, it feels like you're making zero progress and you really want to go grab that brass ring of the next skill or the next accessory or something. And it's just really, really far away. I think this makes sense from like a game design perspective, right? This chapter in general, what like in terms of character progression is about like mid effectiveness stat nodes that were relatively cheap in the first chapter where you get the ability to fully customize your party and paradigms. So you're effectively just getting some stats while checking out all of your secondary roles and very low stakes fights, right? Like nothing here is very challenging and effectively finding out a party composition that you like. And then once you've picked your group, the more expensive nodes yield a, a crazy amount of stats, but it's expensive and you're getting the high tier abilities, which now that you have your party, you're also basically defining how you're going to play your party. Yeah, I mean, I, I disagree at this point because... Basically, the costs are so high, even for the brand new roles that got unlocked for everybody, that you can't really experiment because you, all you're doing is hurting your effectiveness on the roles that you're already, you know, oh, bought into. No, 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 no. I meant like choosing choosing your party members right, and then right. out of their three roles, what are they going to focus on? Yeah, yeah, because during like the main The new roles should be dead to you. I have no idea why they give them to you right now. It's a very bad idea. Right, yeah, because, like, if you're not maximizing... If you've your, done a lot of grinding, have all the CP in the world. Yeah, you can do a lot of grinding, which is what I, oh, I did man, the first if only, time. Maybe they should have put another arc right here. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, but it would have been... Because if it was the ninth arc, if it were the ninth arc, right, it would have been proportionally longer, so it would have been almost twice as long, because it's nine instead of five. <sighs> I mean, they could have just made the cost for the new rolls less so that you could experiment with them more without having to grind so much or without, oh, no. like, kneecapping yourself for Chapter 11. Dog, the progression in this entire game and how it extends into enemy HP pools is absolutely fucked, and I am going to complain about that forever when we talk about the post-game. Duly noted. Go for it. All right. Dispelga is a new TP skill around town. It removes all buffs and debuffs from allies and enemies, but can be useful if the battle gets too out of control for the player. Most roles have a role level waiting at the end of their new long Crystarium paths. Each character has a new accessory slot somewhere in their main roles, but most importantly, there's an ATB node, a node that adds a full ATB point to the character. That's a huge bummer, by the way, because uh, I think Hope's is on Synergist, which is yeah. like not what you really want out of Hope. So you either 
are getting synergist abilities for a while, or Hope is just not getting that ATB for a long time. Yeah, Vanille's is the easiest to get because it's at the beginning of her medic roll, and it's I got like it free. It's basically free. It's right there. It's incredible. Yeah, that's because Vanille is the last one to get her idol on. So like, if you're like me and I, oh. I was, I was rolling Ladies Night Out, you know, with Lightning Fang and Vanille, and so Vanille was rolling along with like very low ATB meter for a whole lot of it, and being a saboteur a lot, a lot of those skills are double for the gas spells they're like two atb gauges so it was a little rough until i unlocked that extra atb node i also didn't unlock dispelga for a good while which made a later part very difficult because i there were enemies that buffed themselves a whole lot and i would have really loved to just wipe that all out with a single move yeah like right so like right now i'm like in the early part of the post game having beaten the game i have still never used dispelga I used it once. It like uh, there was a battle where like I had like the enemies had a whole bunch of buffs on, and I had a couple debuffs, and I used it. It's one of those things where like I don't want to use it because I don't want to get rid of all my buffs. Yeah, let's see. I was I've been rolling without a synergist for the last like twelve hours or thirteen hours, so like I don't even have buffs on, so it wouldn't be a problem for me. Yeah, I find that the synergist and uh, saboteur is only useful once you get to the sort of like last chapter or two, and then suddenly they're the most valuable. Yeah, the saboteur is so good though. Like my favorite, you know, number one paradigm right now is assassination, which is ravenger and two sabs, and it just does such good work on a lot of these enemies and a lot of bosses. Yeah, it, in the post game, Vanille is basically mandatory party member for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's because she gets death and no one else does. Yeah, so now we're entering, what, the fifth arc's central conflux area. You take this elevator down. But at this point, you get a lot of three-way battles with Pulsework Knights and Monsters of Cocoon Origin. They will uh, fight against each other while you're also fighting them. Yeah, Snow gets a weapon down here called the Fae Mark, which emphasizes his magical prowess while debilitating his physical power immensely. And it makes me wonder if it's very viable to play a magic-focused snow. I dicked around with it a little bit. It's not very good, because every character gets like a unique ability in one of their roles. Uh, his unique one is uh, called Sovereign Fist, but it scales with physical, and nothing, uh, none of the Sentinel stuff scales with your magic stat, so it's kind of a huge waste in general. All right. It's mostly there, because when they were making the game, they thought... Okay, here are items. One that's balanced, one that's magic, one that's physical, and then one weird one. And then they copied and pasted that for all of the characters and put no thought into how it would actually affect how they yeah, play. Yeah, there's a lot of like uh, weapons that just aren't very good, that just are completely useless, even if you upgrade them. Yeah, like, you mean you don't want to use Hope's physical attack-oriented weapon? Why not? <laughs> yeah, I don't see why anybody would use... Anything but the Belladonna wand or the Malboro wand for Vanille because debuffing is so strong. The only other case I could see is uh, she has the the medic wand if you don't have a second medic in your party. But I think almost every party configuration you can come up with has two medics in it. Not exactly, actually. I mean, if you're no Vanille Saz, you don't. But No, it's been tough. And that's that's the speed run party, by the way. <laughs> Why? Because Saz's Blitz is really strong, and uh, and Vanille's a good saboteur. Okay, that's about it. Okay, got it. 
Anyway, you <laughs> there there is a trap room somewhere in here where you can take this detour down to this tiny little room where the door closes behind you, and there is a treasure sphere with three electrodes in it. Well, we finally reach the end of the dungeon. The heroes walk out onto a balcony, and it looks like a huge underground pulse cavern. They bicker a bit, like usual. Stowe refines his spunk and says they... That's gross. Uh, and says that they should <laughs> defy their focus and not harm Cocoon. Everyone's on board except for Fang. She doesn't want Vanille to turn into a Seath, so destroying Cocoon is still her goal. In a moment of anger, her brand begins to glow and Bahamut is summoned. Fang's friends come to her aid, and in the middle of like this very intense scene, they like pause for a minute so Fang can like narrate to us about Idolins and tell us that they attack Lassie when they have trouble making up their minds. Yeah, this turn, it just feels really random. I think like, you know, they're they're trying to knock out the rest of the Eidolons for the rest of the party members over the next few hours. And each time it comes up, it feels very poorly paced. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, it's just like all of a sudden Fang goes, nope. Oh, wait, boss battle time. I mean, some would argue you could make an entire game that's only boss battles and it would be critically acclaimed as one of the artsiest best games of all time. So those people would be wrong. I hear good things about Monster Hunter. Player is forced to fight with Fang, Lightning, and Vanille, and uses a specific set of paradigms for the battle. Actually, you can change them if you like reset out and you know go into the menu. Bahamut focuses on Fang with the combo of physical attacks followed up with the party-wide whirlwind attack. Libraing Bahamut twice will reveal that he yields to those who obtain massive chains, defend against attacks, and inflict debuffs on him. Using Fang as a sentinel helps build the Gestalt meter, and when Bahamut is doing his combo attacks, it's highly recommended that you switch over to that. Debilitating Bahamut is also recommended because not only does it build the Gestalt meter, the player can also really stack on the debuffs with both Fang and Vanille as saboteurs, and slow in particular from Fang is a must. So once you beat Bahamut, you get Bahamut as your Eidolon for Fang, she gets her active time battle gauge increase, and a magical bridge appears at the end of this balcony that leads everybody to the other side of this large cavernous room where you find an airship, the staple of the Final Fantasy series. You can look up through the roof and see this gateway which will lead you to Pulse, and at this point, Hope gives a brilliant speech about believing in yourself and not trusting anybody and taking responsibility for your own actions while Lightning watches and grins. During this cutscene, Zaz, like, pounds his chest, and he breaks out into a coughing fit, and it's really random and really stupid. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, Zaz being a buffoon is basically 
along with the power of friendship is the major theme of the game, and it's so dumb. Here's a thought, right? Saz is the only black person in the entire game, and he's also the comedy relief, and that's a really bad look. And he's also the the wise old man giving advice, too, so, like, that's a trope as well. No, Saz's son is the only motivation that they could come up with for a person who's not white, because they don't have anything (laughs) else to live for, right? No, I meant that Saz's son is the the other black person in this game. That's the point I'm making. Yeah. I don't think anybody accused Square Enix of being progressive at any point. No. Yeah, but also with, like, Daddy's Got the Blues and Saz's theme, which are also blues and jazz music, it's a little on the nose. Yeah, it it just goes over the line for me a bit. Like, it could be worse, but, you know. I still like Saz because he's got a chocobo in his hair. In his half-row that he has because he's black. It's so much better than what they do to Saz's design in, like, Brave Exvius or whatever one of the mobile titles. Like, I'll drop it in the show notes, but, like, they hit a real hard with a Bishonen stick for some reason. And he, at least in this game, he looks like someone of that background. <sighs> it just occurred to me that the Saz being token thing gets way worse in Lightning Returns, where he's still the only black person in the entire world, but now he's not even a character. And, like, you just do a fetch quest for him and he never, like, moves or does anything. Womp womp. You know what character might be uh, most deserved by the sequels to this game is the Chocobo and his hair. Oh yes, we'll get there. We will <laughs> oh my totally God, we'll get, get there. there. <laughs> right, because that like if you read the Chocobo's uh, data log a while ago, it says like, why does the Chocobo have a data log? It's so good though. Like if you read it, it's like, oh maybe knowing the name of this Chocobo will like ruin the winds of time and like totally fuck up the. Space-time continuum, or Saz didn't just give it a name yet. And you think that's a joke, but it's actually the first one. <laughs> I find that unbelievable. Is that real? Yes, that's real. That's real. That's real. Look oh it up. God. I'm so glad I haven't read any of the fucking data logs in this game. <laughs> like, I tried, and it's probably better that I didn't. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I stopped reading them, but like that was probably like my favorite goofy one. Like it, that is up there with the uh Final Fantasy Twelve has a like Mandragoras. The Mandragora fight has such good data log info on them, or like you know compendium info. Anyway, so after this, there's a flashback to the fireworks on day eleven, with some narration and then a CGI cutscene of Saz flying through the gateway. Hey, you know when we're not looking at the fireworks, everyone should be wondering how are the fireworks the key motivator of the entire game. It's not. It's just the point at which their lives intersected before the purge happened. So, like, Uh it's like, that's why they keep doing that. I'm fucking over it. (laughs) (laughs) On the other side, they arrive in Pulse, which is this beautiful, you know, landscape with gorges and enormous giant flowers. And it, it looks really outdoorsy. And yes, it looks very Australian, which... If you haven't caught on that Fang and Vanille have Australian accents. I thought they were Irish. And much like Australia, every living creature there tries to kill you. And is poisonous, yeah. In the sky, there is a centipede that attacks the ship and breaks open the window, sending Hope and Vanille into the air. The ship's ruined and (laughs) is falling down to the ground, and Bahamut comes out and saves everybody right before they crash. And everybody is very nonchalant about it, too. They're used to it. They've been through so much. They're just like, whatever. I'm falling through the sky. 
fine. I, I mean, they I know Brad Pendleus just... isn't going to let them die, right? Like, why even bother? <laughs> I'm I'm sorry that I laughed, but without any further dressing it up, a centipede destroys their airship is a very funny mental image. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and uh, uh, there's the one good pun in the game. Yeah, le seafood buffet. It's fine. It's a good pun. It's it's the only good pun in the whole game. And even Fang calls it out like, yep, that was a good joke. <laughs> it pats itself on the back. Also, they destroy every airship. They like they get airships and then destroy them like at the beginning of the next chapter. It, it's like the writers saw like Final Fantasy III and said, thought, okay, we, they killed two airships in that one. We need to up the game a little bit. We'll destroy five airships. But one of them doesn't count because one of them was piloted by Bartandalus, remember? <laughs> it flew itself. Uh, so you can't blame Saz for that one. I mean, I, I can. Doesn't mean I'd be right. Oh, also, I paid extra close attention, and we his, we do not see his afro go through the display, so no update on if, like, displays just electrocute hair. <sighs> okay. What a shame. That brings chapter 10 to a close. Uh, wrapping it up, does anyone have any closing thoughts on chapter 10? This is the best chapter. Really? Are you trying? Are you trolling me right now just based on what I'm about to say? I mean, I'm just going to say that at the end of every episode I want. Okay, okay. Well, <laughs> you, should, like you should Justin. cut that out. That no, I'm going to leave that, I'm gonna leave that in. That I'm going to leave that in. It's funnier if I just say that at, both, at the end of both of them. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, fuck you. <laughs> sure, that's, you're right, that's good. Grab, you could go first, because I'm, I'm unhappy. I didn't love it, but like sometimes the battles were interesting enough. Being able to finally choose your party was refreshing, and that's like a big... like Being able to choose your party and having uh, access to the full Crystarium was really good. Like... That was nice, but I think this chapter is fucking bad. Like, I like the idea of the arc from a narrative perspective, right? But then they turn it into grinding for three hours and then, like, fall back on the narrative justification of let's grind for three hours. That's awful. Yeah, I think they could have cut this chapter and then put the Sid fight somewhere else. And it this chap no, yeah. this chapter, you could have chopped it off right at the end of the first area where you're still inside of what looks like an arc and not what is basically a giant sewer and put Sid at the end. Done. It's like an hour long and it doesn't feel like you need to grind for three hours because we didn't balance the numbers for the rest of the game the correct way. So right. just grind instead. And it's an area with like, what, three, four enemies? Yeah, there's like... Five enemies. They give, like, no CP, but they just make you fight a million fights because the rest of the game is very imbalanced, so they need you to get your numbers higher, and this entire game just screams of, this game came in so hot, it was burning up on entry on the way to the shelf. Mm -hmm. Like, actually, for real, I, I enjoy the combat in this game a lot, and I never did any grinding so do I. when I was in this game, so maybe it's possible that it would be okay. Okay, you know what? Let's let's dip into it a little bit because you're not going to be odd for like the end of the game talk, right? Like, I love the combat in this game, but the combat in the combat system is let down by the encounters they put in it. They cannot figure out how to design like enough encounters that meaningfully interact with the like the paradigm system well enough, so they just make up for it by jacking all the enemies' numbers way up. And that's not infinitely scalable, so at some point they need to jack your numbers way up, 
But instead of just balancing out the stat nodes for that, they just say, here, grind for 40 hours. Yeah, the, the variance of the enemy mobs, there's only like maybe five or five different formulas they use. And at a certain yeah. point, you, you start seeing the, you know, the wireframe of that. And it's like, this is the same as the fight two chapters ago, but now I get debuffed every now and then. You know, they just kind of run out of steam. At this point, like, mechanically, I don't think a whole lot happens besides the uh, the ooze merge. That's really the only new no. thing. It, it said Reigns is cool, right? Like, Reigns spoilers for the rest of our podcast. I didn't realize it last chapter, but last chapter was a turning point where the longer this game goes on, I think less of it because they are able to hide the problems with it less and less. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, I agree with that. All right, you can email the show via contact at lightningstrikesthrice.com or use our contact form on our website, lightningstrikesthrice.com. I'll be running the Twitter, which is at lightxthrice, and the Facebook page at facebook.com slash lightxthrice. And uh, apologies about not having uh, episode two up on the Twitter. If you <laughs> Actually, you know what? This is so far ahead. Who cares? Uh, I'm sure I'm sure like our thousands of listeners were very upset. Yeah, no, I had it up on Facebook and everywhere else. I just... I couldn't log into the Twitter in Puerto Rico. I'm just just <laughs> joshing you, fam. Yeah. Anyway, you can listen to my other podcast on the network, Magmar Sucks, where we are building an ordered list of all Pokemon from most to least interesting, one Pokemon at a time. Do you guys have anything to share with the listeners? Um, nothing new right now. Uh, I'm still doing that Final Fantasy VII game mod Let's Play. It's on New Threat, a challenge mod for Final Fantasy VII. I'm really enjoying it right now. At the time of this recording, I am just getting out of Wu-Tai, and I'm going to approach the final parts of Disc 1. Wu-Tai is what I say every time we order takeout. Really? <laughs> yeah, Wu, comma, Tai. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's so funnier when you explain them. <laughs> I agree, actually. <laughs> uh. Justin, how about you? You got anything going on you want to talk about? I, I joined the Wu-Tai Clan. Does that count? Fuck yeah. I, uh, I gotta like, stop fucking with you now. We, we just had a, a Wu-Tang Clan joke in episode three. <laughs> that we just I love the Wu-Tang Clan. The Wu-Tang Clan is the best. <laughs> That's what we call a callback. Uh, Justin, do you want to like plug red pages or whatever? Yeah, so I also do a podcast. There, I guess it's a podcast network because there are two podcasts that we do called... Red Pages podcast. We do things uh, like interview game developers about their video games that they've made. We've had a whole bunch of really good guests like Edmund McMillan, who did Super Meat Boy, or Rand Miller, who made Mist, or a bunch of other really good, interesting people. And I don't know how we keep conning them into, into coming onto our show, but they keep they keep going. Did you think he understood what your podcast name was about? Uh, Rand? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. No, for, for sure. <laughs> okay. No, no we, we talked about it. It was it was good. I wanted you to say no, because that would have been funny. I know, it also would have been funny if he didn't know. But I think as the guy who wrote a bunch of sentences that are like, bring me the red pages over and over in his life, he, he figured it out. Yeah, so that, and then there's also Dark Pages podcast, where we look at the level design of Dark Souls levels, because you can never have too many Dark Souls podcasts, am I right? That, you're probably right, actually. R.I.P. Bonfireside Chat. Yeah, so... I don't think anything else. Uh, go buy my game, Frog Fractions 2. That's, that's I tried, but I couldn't find it on Steam. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really hard. No, I don't think it came out yet, did it? Uh, maybe. I guess you'll have to find okay. it. Yeah, those are the only things I have to plug. All right. 
Well, in that case, you've been listening to Lightning Strikes Thrice, a pitch drop podcast. We'll see you one week from now when we talk about Chapter 11, all about Pulse and the many wonders it contains. Goodbye. Bye now. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you by the Pitch Drop Podcast Network. Like what you just heard? Support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash pitch drop. And while you're at it, check out pitchdrop.net for more of this and other shows.